0: Hi everyone. The following show with Dr. Raymond Peet was recorded on January twenty second, two thousand and twelve. It's about progesterone, and a growing number of shows can be found at the Radio for All website. That's Radio Four allnet dot net, and then search for Politics and Science. Welcome to Politics and Science. I'm your host, John Barkhausen, and today. Once again, I'm delighted to say that Ray Pete is here to join me, Dr. Raymond Pete. Dr. Pete has a Ph.D. in biology and has done extensive research in the fields of physiology and endocrinology. Is that enough, Ray? Oh, that's enough. That's enough. Okay, it's enough for me. <laughs> and I was just saying that we've never really touched on the subject uh, in a pure form of progesterone. And I was looking back through your newsletters. Or for those who don't know, Ray Pete has a website, raypeet.com, where he's posted a lot of your newsletters. What percent of your letters are up there at this point, Ray?
1: Um, I've written um, 300 and some, and, and uh, I think there are only about 75 on okay. the website, so about a quarter.
0: There's so much knowledge in, in each one. And plenty of food for thought, even if you don't agree with what you're putting forward. I find I can read them many times, and they always seem new because there's so much information packed into them. So they're all there for people just to to enjoy uh, when you yeah, want to do the it. Yeah, the
1: search, the little search device on the website helps to find, for example, if you put in progesterone, you'll find lots and lots of newsletters that talk about it.
0: That's right. And the the newsletters... I started off with one but there were actually three uh almost in a row that you did in 2007 uh dealing with uh progesterone and the regulation of progesterone which is starting to happen yeah. th- then um and I thought maybe we could start the show unless you had a better idea uh just talking about how you first got interested in progesterone
1: um yeah uh, I had been writing about it uh Somewhat in the seventies, but this um, proposition sixty five thing in California calling it a carcinogen that was the occasion for me writing this new bunch of newsletters a few years ago but um, I had been studying uh, oh uh, linguistics was what I was studying right before I uh, came to Oregon and moving from Mexico to Montana. And then Oregon, uh, I noticed a great change in the way my health worked and uh, realized that it was the absence of sunlight, dark, cloudy weather. Uh, I I saw the same thing happening to all the women I knew during the winter, especially uh, students who came from sunny areas and then uh, lived in dark student apartments during the winter. Uh, They would get PMS and uh, just, uh, I called it winter sickness, a whole range of things, but especially PMS was outstanding. And at that time I was aware of the old experiments and observations in which birds, uh, for example, in Times Square, uh, people had noticed that the uh, sparrows mated all year round because of the, the bright light and uh, what uh, in other species for example there are animals that can mate during the winter but they don't really get pregnant until about March 20th when days become longer than nights and what happens in that situation is that uh, the embryo is formed but it doesn't implant in the uterus until the progesterone reaches a certain level and light is the, uh, the a certain day length uh, of, of light exposure uh, raises the progesterone and uh, allows fertility to proceed. And I was interested in that because I had noticed that during uh, bright, uh, sunny, long days, Uh, my vitamin A requirement increased tremendously. uh, And I I gradually came to understand that the sex hormones go up in the spring with long, long hours of light. And vitamin A is massively used in producing pregnenolone and progesterone. And uh, so right at the the beginning of moving to Oregon before I actually began uh, attending university, I I was seeing that progesterone and daylight were very powerful on uh, the emotions and uh, body functions. Uh, The the premenstrual mood changes uh, were evident even even in men. Uh, typically, men coming from a sunny climate would be depressed all winter, uh, living in cloudy Oregon.
0: Mm. Uh, how did you link sunlight to progesterone? Was it something that was already discovered, or were you working on uh, that?
1: Yeah, it, it was um, one night uh, I went to sleep reading a book with a bright light shining in my face. And I woke up starting to get pimples and I realized that just the light shining on my eyes, activating my brain, had done something to affect my uh, metabolism and uh, in trying to understand how the light affected my skin, even though it was just mild, incandescent light. Uh, That was what I started reading, and I ran across the... The winter fertility of sparrows uh, from, from bright light and uh, the uh, springtime implantation of, of animals. So I realized that uh, everyone from birds to, to men experience the, um, the driving of their hormones uh, by day length and the first the first steroid made is either pregnant alone or progesterone.
0: And do you think uh you said that people coming from southern climes uh experience depression coming north and I've noticed that among friends of mine who have done that. Uh do you think there's an adjustment that's made where you whereby even with less light you can produce progesterone or or all of us in the north uh <laughs> depressed for yeah, that reason.
1: <laughs> yeah, we just get used to being depressed. That's remember. right. That's <laughs> right. Um, yeah. If you look at Scandinavian movies, mm-hmm. <laughs> you see that depression seems to be the rule.
0: Yeah, the uh, the Bergman uh, approach to life. Yeah. Um. So, and when did you become aware that uh, progesterone was uh, useful uh, therapeutically for for cancer and other things?
1: Oh, um, I started. Um, I was intending to study nerve biology, and uh, the very first few weeks at the university, I realized what dogmatists the uh, the brain and nerve biology people were, and uh, so I I just went looking around, poking into all the labs at the university, and uh, saw that the reproductive physiology people were. Uh, Open-minded and actually uh, studying things rather than uh, trying to confirm their dogma, and so I immediately switched over from uh, nerve biology to reproductive biology. Hmm. And, Rick,
0: can I interrupt? What was the giveaway okay. that that um, what gave it away that they were open-minded, non-dogmatic?
1: <laughs> um. Well, the. Um, talking to the the nerve biology people, uh, it was just their personalities were absolutely (laughs) militaristic, rigid, Mm. closed-minded, single-minded. And uh, the uh, the, the money went (laughs) along with that uh, big research grants. And the reproductive uh, physiology had grants, but Uh, very low prestige in the department Mm -hmm. and people were very relaxed and open and uh, had uh, basically a a willingness to learn and consider things just personality was was very obviously different
0: and so you were saying
1: there was one group working on uh, male reproduction and the other one female and Mm. uh, Arnold Soderwall was the uh, person in charge of the female reprodu- reproductive end. And, and uh, there were only, uh, I guess when I was there, there were three uh, graduate students working in the lab.
0: Hmm. Well, that sounds very intimate. Um, it uh, yeah, it sounds like uh, a good atmosphere.
1: Uh, yeah, um, and Soderwall was uh, the link. With previous students uh, and what they had been doing, so uh, he his work uh, made us feel that our stuff was continuing a tradition that had started in the thirties and forties, uh, where when Soderwall was a graduate student, hmm. and and so uh, the three of us were working on on different parts of the system. Uh, Bev Stockton was working on implantation which involved uh, an age-related delay in the production of progesterone and uh, Terry Parkening was was working on uh, I, I think some enzymes at that time but he he later uh, shifted over to uh, uh, see that the um, failure of progesterone uh, was an essential uh, Excess estrogen and falling progesterone was an essential change mm-hmm. of aging infertility, and I was working on the oxidative changes in the aging reproductive system.
2: Hmm.
1: And and uh, okay. as I worked with the the chemicals, I I would that handling progesterone, I had always had a tendency to hang nails and just being careless in the lab and getting some of the progesterone on my hands uh, I noticed that my hangnails disappeared and have never come back
0: hmm. So uh, even though it's considered to be somewhat of a female hormone, I think by you it, it, it's also an important has an important role in, in males as well
1: Um. Yeah Um. Uh, as I uh, got acquainted with, with how it felt on my hands, for example, uh, and I noticed that uh, if I stuck my hand in the the powder, uh, I could very quickly taste it on my tongue or or sense an awareness that it had got into my bloodstream. Um, I looked at uh, the changes that were known to occur in males, and I saw that someone had uh, two different groups just almost at the same time had observed that an intrauterine uh, device for contraception uh, often caused systemic health problems and they found that that the problems were related to uh, a falling progesterone and uh, animal studies showed that if you put a slight wound into the uterus signals travel up to the ovary and block the production of progesterone because it, the animal system recognizes that it isn't wise to get pregnant mm-hmm. when you have a wounded uterus. So um, that, that was uh, recognized as the effect of the IUD uh, or one of the effects. But at the same time, another group found that men who had had the vasectomy often suffered uh, very serious effects, impotency and such. Mm-hmm. And they found that the, the men who suffered the health effects from a vasectomy had very low progesterone and that repli- replacing their uh, progesterone levels up to normal cured their symptoms. And mm-hmm. very often, uh, just one dose was all that was needed to start the ovaries in the woman or the uh, gonads in the man to uh, begin producing the normal amount.
0: And, of course, you've mentioned before that uh, progesterone is the hormone of fertility that uh, it promotes life.
1: Um, yeah, it's the, uh, the basic implantation uh, stabilizer. Estrogen uh, creates a release of histamine throughout the body, but especially where it's concentrated in the uterus. And the, the histamine... Uh, creates a a site of inflammation that is actively growing, but that the inflammation focus under the influence of estrogen prevents survival of the implanted embryo. And progesterone turns off the histamine and estrogen and makes it possible to deliver oxygen and sugar to the uh, implanted embryo which would be killed if the estrogen influence continued. Uh, so it's the, the shift towards oxygen and sugar delivery that that makes progesterone the uh, preserver of pregnancy.
2: Hmm.
1: And interestingly people have removed animals' ovaries at the time of uh, fertilization and then given them different hormones and they found that testosterone (laughs) worked to preserve uh, pregnancy by delivering oxygen and and sugar to the uh, implanted embryo Mm -hmm. so uh, you could say that testosterone is is a progestin in the sense of supporting pregnancy and uh, (laughs) the the things that are called progestins or progestogens The term implies that these are uh, acting to preserve pregnancy the way progesterone is. But in fact, the synthetic so-called progestins are used in birth control pills (laughs) because exactly what they don't do is support pregnancy. Uh, So they've got the, the naming system very confused in which testosterone functions Potentially as a progestin, and the so-called progestins are really anti-progestational chemicals. But uh, doctors have been very confused by that terminology.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's well, it's very confusing for all of us. It sounds like uh, our filing system is a little bit screwed up.
1: Uh, Yeah, the the, um, estrogen industry really uh, contributed to that um, by uh, creating a theory. (laughs) Of how estrogen is, is a potential contraceptive because it was known from uh, the time Soderwall began his studies uh, from the late 1930s through the, the 40s it was known that estrogen is an abortifacient it kills the embryo either at the time of implantation or anytime later when it becomes the dominant influence and uh, the estrogen industry didn't want their product known to be uh, killing the the embryos, and so they uh, claimed that it it stopped uh, ovulation. Uh, that that was invented just in time for them to come on the market with birth control pills, but it, it was just a, a complete fabrication. Uh, that they made up so that it, it wouldn't be seen as, as causing abortions. It,
0: would it, be. it It does seem bizarre that estrogen is I think almost universally among the public anyway considered to be the female hormone mm-hmm. when that's actually the, the hormone of infertility and abortions.
1: Um, yeah, uh, and the reason for that was that uh, progesterone uh, it turned out to be uh, such a basic simple substance that works to, to preserve both male and female fertility and to stabilize nerve cells and and blood sugar level and oxygen delivery and all of those things uh, only that one molecule it, as as the first steroid uh, made uh, out of uh, cholesterol uh, that only that single molecule has those functions, and estrogen. Uh, they very early, uh, mid 1930s, discovered that soot could be extracted to form almost an infinite number of estrogenic substances, and as uh, so, it was possible for the industry to patent various synthetics, uh, diethylstilbestrol (DES). Uh, became a popular uh, product for the industry and uh, they wanted the, the uh, idea that it was a female hormone for sales purposes even though the, uh, it was known that uh, it, it actually is essential for male uh, traits to develop uh, so estrogen could be also called the the male hormone better than it could be called the female hormone
0: because it causes hair growth and and what else
1: Uh, uh, well the the early uh, development of male characteristics is induced by uh, the local production of of estrogen Hmm. testosterone has to turn into estrogen before it androgenizes the brain before it brings out the male features uh,
0: how long did you uh, continue to work under Arnold Soderwall?
1: Uh, until 1972, I, I started. Uh, mo- I moved over to his uh, area, I guess, early 1969, mm-hmm. and uh, then with Nixon, uh, Nixon canceled a lot of science grants, and and that closed the the, the lab that Soderwall had huh. been running for many years.
0: Uh, that's, a sh- that's a shame. Uh, is that where you got your PhD, Ray?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I had to write my uh, dissertation quickly the summer of 72 because Nixon had shut off the grants. Uh, we were, <laughs> the, the government approved the grants, but Nixon simply uh, cut the funds off for even the approved grants. Cool.
0: Well, looking back uh, at uh, science history a bit, when was progesterone discovered and how has it been used?
1: In the early 30s, the molecule was identified and um, very quickly, I think Armour was the company that made the corpus luteum uh, pork ovaries were separated from, from pregnant uh, pigs and uh, the corpus luteum was uh, very richly uh, supplied with progesterone and so the um, corpus luteum powder was sold uh, as early as uh, I think 1935 and I think I was probably uh, one of the early uh, progesterone babies Hmm. (laughs) I see uh, uh, my mother having been infertile and getting uh, the (laughs) <laughs> I think it was the armor corpus luteum product,
0: huh so you you do have a personal stake in this <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um it, what it what for myself and everybody else is the corpus luteum is that a place oh, where progesterone yeah. is concentrated
1: uh yeah uh, when the uh, follicle ovulates, releases the 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 uh, for the egg to be fertilized uh along with a burst of estrogen then this area turns into steroid producing cells and reduces the production of estrogen relative to uh, the total steroids and uh, progesterone is the the main steroid produced from that time on and in humans that uh, is the basic source of progesterone for the first uh, nine weeks Nine or ten weeks of pregnancy, and then the uh, placenta takes over production, hmm. and the corpus luteum fades out. But uh, with each pregnancy, uh, that some of those cells remain in the ovary. So, uh, a woman who has been pregnant eight times in her lifetime will have a higher residual progesterone levels, and will uh, live much longer than on average a woman who hasn't had so many pregnancies hmm. uh, they, they saw the same thing in animals that uh, the more litters the animals had the younger their tissue, tissues were at a given age is
0: that perhaps why uh, some women who get fibroids they've noticed that uh, the fibroids go away if they get pregnant and likely don't return
1: oh i uh, I don't think I had heard of that, but yeah, uh, progesterone was uh, recommended for many years for uh, treating, making fibroids redress, but um, partly that involves increased thyroid function. Uh, Progesterone is needed to be in balance uh, for the thyroid to work, and then the thyroid working causes the liver to lower the estrogen level systemically. So sometimes just one dose of progesterone is all it takes to free the thyroid to function, to Mm. stimulate new progesterone uh, synthesis and the lower estrogen systemically.
0: Mm. And you've often talked before about estrogen and and, uh, progesterone uh, basically opposing each other, where you might get a surge of estrogen for a certain purpose but uh, if the progesterone doesn't come up to uh, nullify that effect, uh, you'll end um, up with bad health effects.
1: Uh, yeah, estrogen stimulates the uptake of water by, uh, I think its first action is to block the use of oxygen. That causes the cell to take up water in the first few hours or minutes of exposure. And the uh, overloading Cells with water causes them to go into a growth inflammation state where they, mm. they, they forget what they had been doing and, and simply start, uh, multiplying. And uh, so for the first 12 hours, that gives a burst of new, uh, cells in the uterus ready to, uh, receive an implantation. Uh, in the breasts, it creates, uh, a mass of new cells to enlarge the milk production capacity. And in the pituitary, it uh, enlarges uh, the cells that will uh, take over production of of prolactin at the time of lactation. But if you continue that exposure more than a a day, uh, that growth continues, and then you increase the risk of, of breast tumors and pituitary tumors. Uh, when birth control pills were first on the market in the 1960s they had uh, big doses of estrogen and there was a terrific epidemic of pituitary tumors producing uh, prolactin uh, that uh, th- there's been very little written about it but it was uh, like the yearly production in one hospital of pituitary tumors went from uh, I think just a few like 5 per year up to 300 per year in one publication wow that's significant and you were talking about uh, your mother having taken
0: uh, armor uh, corpus lutum uh, and, and was it used for other things was that a f- for getting pregnant is that why she was taking it
1: Yeah, yeah it was recognized that estrogen uh, wasn't the fertility uh, factor as really as as that mm-hmm. and the progesterone was, but the estrogen industry not being able to patent progesterone because there was only one substance uh, they and and it was very expensive to make. They found that you know soot is as cheap as anything and so you can uh, pr- for no production cost you can make any kind of estrogenic substance you choose to Hmm. and and so they created uh, the whole mythology of what uh, the female hormone is and uh, at that time uh, progesterone had to be very laboriously converted from cholesterol the way the ovary does it and it was later in the 40s when uh, Russell Marker uh, devised a way to make it from the yam steroid, and it became very cheap in the uh, early 1950s. But the the first uh, synthetic forms of progesterone that could be patented that were later developed as contraceptives, uh, these were modified molecules that they marketed as synthetic progesterone uh, with the argument that real progesterone is destroyed in the stomach and so you have to take our product because we've modified it and made it uh, biologically active when you take a pill mm-hmm. otherwise you would have to inject it and uh, there were doctors injecting progesterone and, and curing all kinds of things through the 1940s uh, from premenstrual syndrome, uh, premature uh, births, uh, cancer, and so on, uh, but then the uh, using the natural in-
0: using natural progesterone,
1: natural progesterone, yeah. but the drug the the drug companies uh, did their uh, campaign to uh, say that uh, that's uh, too expensive and uh, very few women would want to be injected every month. Uh, and so here's this synthetic pill which you can take orally and they just out of thin air they said uh, natural progesterone can't be taken orally even though a, a few companies were selling 10 milligram progesterone tablets that worked fine mm-hmm. even though the dose was low and fairly expensive <clears throat> but um, they convinced doctors just with a few unsourced claims in the medical journals that natural progesterone didn't work, so they had to use the the synthetics. And it turned out that the synthetics had estrogen-like anti-conception prob- effects.
0: I see. So they weren't actually doing the f- full physiological effects of progesterone, and they had side effects.
1: Uh, yeah. They they were not progestational uh, support agents. I they see. They had some slight overlap that allowed them to to make the the claim. Uh, you put some cells in vitro and uh, you get certain changes that are similar to what happens in the pregnant uterus, but uh, you you can 't get the same uh, beneficial looking effects in the whole animal only in the culture dish. Mm.
0: Uh, Can you describe, basically, how it was uh, used uh, therapeutically? I think you've mentioned a few examples, but I know, um, uh, I think her name was Katerina Dalton, who's a doctor in England, and she wrote a book whose name escapes me. Maybe you know the name of the book. But her primary method of giving it was injections.
1: Um, Yeah, and and, uh, uh, one of the problems was that it's... uh, Extremely insoluble in everything. Uh, hot olive oil will dissolve a lot of it, so it'll work on your skin or orally in solution uh, for the first three or four hours, but it, it crystallizes out of solution. So it, it, the only way you can market an injectable uh, effective product in oil is to use. Uh, something like benzyl benzoate or benzyl alcohol Mm. and uh, in our lab uh, we had some old uh, containers of benzyl benzoate just touching the outside of a a bottle that uh, hadn't been opened for 10 or 15 years Um, my fingers began to to crack from Mm. an allergic reaction to it and that stuff was injected massively as a solvent with a lot of the early progesterone treatments but still the patients got better uh, because of the powerfully anti-inflammatory effects of progesterone and the uh, the less uh, allergenic benzyl alcohol uh, was the one that persisted in use the longest and it is a nerve toxin Uh, that uh, will kill the nerves in the region where it's injected, except that, again, progesterone's powerfully detoxifying effects um, overrode those poisonous effects of the benzyl alcohol. And and so uh, Catherine Dalton's results were uh, just amazing. Uh, Oh, go ahead. What was she using uh, it for, I was going to ask? Premenstrual syndrome. Uh, which was related to the tendency to miscarry mm. and uh, the the women who did have uh, pregnancies uh, usually delivered uh, very prematurely and their babies were usually uh, underweight and tended to have an. I think the average IQ was 90 mm. uh, and uh, so she was uh, giving them uh, the the injections to cure their premenstrual syndrome and they would become pregnant and she would continue giving the injections during the pregnancy Uh, sometimes uh, several hundred um, milligrams uh, sometimes up to I think 3,000 milligrams per pregnancy Hmm. uh, depending on what they seem to need although other researchers found that in a lot of women uh, who had the tendency to bleed every month and then to miscarry, that very often just one dose of progesterone was all it took to uh, stop that monthly bleeding and make them able to carry to term. But anyway, Katharina Dalton uh, treated this large number of patients over the years, and uh, someone mentioned that uh, it was interesting that her patients' babies all turned out to be so bright. Uh, they were mostly working-class women, and uh, she mm-hmm. said, "Yeah, I, th- that's hard to believe because uh, these women, the the previous babies, all had a 90 IQ." And so she did a study and uh, found that, in fact, uh, her babies. Tended to average 130 IQ, uh, just as as a result of the uh, regular progesterone dosing, a 40 point average increase, and she saw that the uh, the intelligence of the babies corresponded to the amount of progesterone she gave the mothers during pregnancy. Uh, the ones uh, who got more than 1,500 milligrams her pregnancy uh, turned out the brightest hmm. and uh, there, uh, in England uh, working class kids uh, have very low probability of going to the university and uh, her patients uh, the ones born after the progesterone treatment had a very high academic success uh, outstanding at all Levels of school and got scholarships to university, and their um, personalities were very good. She said the only problem was that uh, they didn't do well in uh, gym class because they didn't like to march <laughs> in, <Formation>. in ranks. <laughs> yeah, didn't like to follow orders. Yeah, uh, uh, weren't uh, weren't. Uh, placid enough to to do the kind of arts and crafts things that were expected of them. <laughs> but in all the academic subjects, they were outstanding.
0: That's remarkable. And uh, maybe your mother's uh, corpus lutum, uh ingestion might have helped <laughs> you in similar ways. <laughs> Possibly. Possibly. Um, so, What did you do after you left the lab, Ray? You got your Ph.D., and did you keep working with progesterone after that?
1: Um, Not much. Um, It was several years until I I was doing nutrition consulting, and uh, I I think the first time I decided, I I was giving talks to medical groups and trying to convince them to use progesterone but I was just working out um, uh, diet changes that could optimize the hormones increase thyroid and lower estrogen and uh, I was I was hoping that, that doctors would come to understand uh, why they shouldn't give estrogen because uh, there's really no such thing as an estrogen deficiency any tissue that's injured will become a source of estrogen production. (coughs) And um, the absence of estrogen in the bloodstream, uh, it it often means that there's an excess of estrogen inside cells uh, because when progesterone is adequate, it will uh, destroy the proteins that bind estrogen inside cells causing the harmful estrogen effect Uh, progesterone causes the estrogen to be released from inside cells into the bloodstream where it can be controlled and eliminated Uh, so you can't go by a a blood test that seems to show an estrogen deficiency and uh, the more Hmm. a tissue is injured or aged the more likely it is to have aromatase inside making estrogen. So an injured uh, breast tending to develop a tumor becomes a source of estrogen itself. An injured uterus becomes a source of new estrogen. Hmm. Uh, Fat, that uh, uh, a person isn't uh, metabolizing their energy system very well, so they lay down... And fat becomes a source of estrogen. Hmm.
0: Well, you were saying that aging can be uh, uh, equivalent to an injury. And so does that mean as we get older, we're all producing more estrogen?
1: Uh, yeah, more of our tissues. Uh, the, the person tends to lose muscle and bone and uh, replace it with fat and connective tissue. And uh, those tissues become... Sources of inflammatory materials and estrogen,
0: mm. and uh, progesterone in its role as opposing that in- inflammatory process that would shut down that estrogen cycle. Uh,
1: yeah, it it um, it's one of the things that turns off aromatase, but it also uh, turns off the enzymes that inflammation. Causes estrogen to concentrate in the tissue besides being produced in the tissue. So any estrogen that your liver is trying to get rid of uh, through the kidneys, mm-hmm. if it happens to pass by an inflamed cell, enzymes will catch the estrogen um, by releasing uh, glucuronic acid or sulfate from the estrogen molecule. Uh, progesterone inactivates. Both of those enzymes that cause tissues to catch estrogen, and it activates the opposite enzymes right in that tissue, uh, allowing the tissue to send estrogen back out by attaching sulfate or glycerinic acid to it. A- and it uh, shifts the balance of reduction oxidation enzymes so that it shifts away from the powerful estradiol Mm -hmm. to the weak estrone. Uh, I think there are nine different things that happen in a single uh, inflamed cell under the influence of progesterone uh, to release estrogen from the cell and stop its production. Uh, And uh, uh, what got me started uh, uh, recommending it directly to people uh, was... A woman, 52 year old woman, <coughs> who had been epileptic uh, from the uh, age of 35. She was a school teacher <coughs> and uh, had had migraines. <coughs> and a neurologist told her that migraines were like uh, uh, epilepsy and uh, gave her uh, an anti seizure drug. And uh, She said it did stop her migraines, but it made her so stupid she couldn't go back to teaching school. And uh, Hmm. so she stopped taking the drug and had an actual seizure. Her first seizure was when she stopped taking the seizure medicine that she hadn't really needed. Wow. And so she went to the doctor and he said, uh, see, I told you, migraines were like epilepsy. (laughs) It's like
0: she'd been vaccinated with the flu vaccine and then got the flu.
1: Yeah, and uh, so right from the age of 35, she was having so many seizures uh, that she couldn't teach school anymore. And after 17 years, she said every year the neurologist would give her a a mental test and uh, declare that her mind had deteriorated farther. And she was so demanded that she couldn't find her way home if she uh, went outside the house Uh, so the first time she visited, her son uh, brought her so he could take her home. She said she was spending uh, all but a couple of hours every day in bed having seizures Mm. and and taking her anti-seizure drugs and uh, she had some arthritic fingers uh, all puffed up and red and I I told her that uh, since I had been talking to some of the doctors telling them that since they were convinced that progesterone can't be taken orally I dissolved it in oil and convinced them that they could use it transdermally as a way to get around their prejudice uh, the mistaken belief that it isn't active orally Mm -hmm. Um, so I had some of the progesterone in oil and I told her about it uh, how it was anti-inflammatory and anti-seizure and I suggested she try it and uh, she held up her her fat fingers and said well these are inflamed so I'll start and she dipped her fingers in the beaker full of progesterone oil Mm -hmm. and uh, her son took her home. I gave her a a sheet of paper and uh, told her to mark each day uh, how she felt starting at the left and moving day by day across the, the sheet and she said Oh, that's easy every day I feel the worst mm-hmm. possible and so she drew some circles in the lower left-hand corner and uh, I think it was four or five days later I saw her coming down the walk without her son uh, waving the paper in one hand and wiggling her fingers <laughs> on the other hand. Wow. <laughs> and uh, uh, she had drawn uh, a curved line with the fourth or fifth circle up in the upper right-hand corner of the paper, and her fingers were not arthritic anymore. <laughs> and uh, she uh, said she felt fine and was was uh, working all day around the house and. Uh, could find her way home. Uh, that was in the summer, and uh, she enrolled back in the university for a master's degree in gerontology and got straight A's uh, and uh, got her degree hmm. uh, nine, nine months later. Uh, and she had been told for years that she was hopelessly demented.
0: And what about her seizures, Ray? No more. Wow.
1: Just that one. One week of doses uh, got everything back to normal.
0: And that was just transdermal, uh, topical applications. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: and her blood test showed that she had uh, quite a bit more estrogen in her blood than progesterone. Um, and you should have about 100 times more progesterone than estrogen.
0: Hmm, wow. So that's... Uh, That's remarkable, and so at that point you started to recommend it uh, regularly to people?
1: Yeah, and uh, uh, at that time I was uh, teaching endocrinology at the naturopathic college, and uh, somehow, I guess someone that the epileptic person knew uh, heard I was interested in progesterone, and she had uh, read... Katharina Dalton's book and talked a doctor into giving her progesterone shots and she had had multiple sclerosis or optic neuritis had been paralyzed bedridden and uh, I, I think she was mostly blind for weeks at a time hmm. uh, because of the optic neuritis and she uh, was getting these periodic uh, semi-toxic injections of progesterone every time she could talk a doctor into it. Toxic, and toxic
0: the, because of the vehicle that it was—the benzo yeah. alcohol or something.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, she volunteered to um, lecture to my uh, endocrine class in in Portland, which was in an old building upstairs, and uh, she drove herself there, uh, walked up to the. Whatever it was, second or third floor, mm-hmm. and lectured th- through the two-hour class about uh, what she had learned about progesterone from her own experience and Katharina Dalton's work. Wow! And so my my major uh, path students were pretty well convinced by by her lecture.
0: What year was this, Ray? Uh,
1: seventy-eight. Seventy-eight,
0: and at that or point,
1: maybe, seventy-seven or seventy-eight.
0: Okay. And at that point, um, I mean, obviously, it sounds like progesterone is one of the obvious ways it's doing its work is as an anti-inflammatory, because all those uh, problems sound like inflammation problems, don't they?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. After uh, th- that first experience with the, the fat fingers, I started telling people about the topical use, and uh, I, I think it was about thirty people who had essentially immediate or overnight uh, recovery from various types of arthritis, not just rheumatoid but uh, so-called osteoarthritis Mm -hmm. a woman woman from Sweden who had some uh, metal joints installed and was planning several more installations uh, and was basically crippled, Uh, she was visiting in Eugene and uh, a psych- psychologist friend who started using progesterone herself uh, gave her uh, some, and she spread it all over her body, and spent her time in Eugene, walking around town, enjoying the sights and the uh, having no arthritis. Because
0: hmm. the inflammation had gone down, so there's no pain. Yeah, yeah. And, Now you've uh, you've, ca- you've cautioned man against using uh, too much progesterone because it it's uh opposes testosterone too or what what's
1: yeah I, I if you if you take a very big dose it um, its has a cold shower effect it simply displaces testosterone temporarily and and so if a man isn't understanding the physiology of it, he might be frightened by the the sudden effect sure. but it passes in two or three days
0: okay so uh because i I know from what you're saying it sounds so amazing, and I know a lot of people with arthritis, so if they're listening to this, uh they might um obviously want to try some and uh if if men are if men are doing it, are there any other cautionary tales about using progesterone
1: um not well y- yeah um once uh a friend accidentally put uh a, a spoonful of it in a margarita thinking it was pregnenolone (laughs) and uh, (laughs) on I guess I had about a 500 or a thousand milligrams and I couldn't feel where my hands and feet were for about uh, half an hour
0: (laughs) (laughs) because it's an anesthetic
1: yeah and uh, it it will anesthetize you totally if you take very large doses so uh At first, when I found that vitamin E was a good solvent, I made very concentrated solutions, but I realized that uh, a person uh, getting too enthusiastic might kill themselves by anesthetizing themselves. Uh, There's nothing in the literature about using it as an anesthetic in humans, but I've had the experience, so I don't think uh, it should be more than a a 10% solution.
0: Now, I know... um we're actually almost out of time here, so I think I wanted to talk about uh, sort of the broad science implications of uh, progesterone and how it's been approached by science and the medical world in general, but I don't even think we're going to get to that. So if you wouldn't mind, Ray, making maybe this two shows, uh, and okay. we, can t- we can take on the, the uh, other issues next time. But I wanted to... Um, Ask you uh, something which just flew out of my mind like a bird. Um, we were what we were just talking about before I interrupted you again.
1: Arthritis. It, yeah, surprisingly, the effect even when your knees have been examined and, and the cartilage is crumbling to pieces or your knee looks like a football. Yeah. Uh, the sec- second person I I gave progesterone to, we just bought a. A flask of the injectable stuff in the toxic alcohol. Mm -hmm. Uh, My friend had a knee that uh, he could. uh, He said it was agonizingly painful, and uh, it was swelling up every day uh, for weeks and weeks.
0: Had it been injured?
1: uh, No, just from working at his bench every day. Yeah, and uh, we, we spread this whole flask from his thigh. Around his knee, down to the upper part of his calf, and within two or three hours, <laughs> this football-sized knee had deflated. That was in nineteen seventy-eight or nine, and uh, for all the years up until uh, two or three years ago, he had never had arthritis again.
2: Hmm. Uh,
1: thirty thirty years, roughly.
0: Wow. I know what I wanted to say. I, I just, we were talking about the possible negative sides of uh, progesterone and you were saying, you know, the, the worst thing that could happen is maybe overdosing and uh, going to sleep. Um, and that reminded me of the Wall Street Journal article about uh, brain damaged people, uh, people who have been in oh. accidents or had strokes.
1: Yeah, it was known uh, in the 50s as, as a brain preserving uh, hormone, both uh, pre- prenatally and in animal studies. Uh, uh, it's a growth factor for nerves and uh, an anti-stress, anti-inflammatory agent. So it's, it's anti-edema. Uh, edema is one of the factors that kills the rest of the brain cells after some of them have been injured. So it's an obvious way to stop the progression of the damage after mm-hmm. brain trauma, but it's also a growth factor that uh, optimizes the repair. It, uh, is, it promotes the remyelinization of of the fibers, that, uh, for example, in multiple sclerosis that seems to be, or in optic neuritis, that seems to be why it's therapeutic.
0: Mm. One of the most impressive things about that long article in The Wall Street Journal was that uh, he did a very extensive study on all these brain injured people and stroke victims, and many of them made miraculous recoveries and uh, there were no no uh, side effects uh, from the use of the progesterone so there 's not I've, many treatments that you can say that about
1: um, yeah it's um, in the seventies I advocated that everyone should carry a bottle with them in case they were in an accident uh, as first aid for whatever happened to you because, uh, for example, uh, a friend spilled a a pan of boiling water on her thigh and Mm -hmm. we happened to have a beaker of progesterone there and we poured that on and uh, an hour or so later there was no pain or redness or blister Wow.
0: Well, Ray, uh we are out of time and uh sped by as usual and we've been talking to Dr. Raymond Pete, uh, endocrinologist physiologist uh with a PhD in biology from Eugene, Oregon. And you can find out more about Ray at his website, raypeet.com, R A Y P E A T dot com. Uh Ray, thanks so much for being on and I hope to continue this in a part two discussion uh, in the days to come.
1: Okay, very good.
0: All right. Thanks a lot, Ray. Mm-hmm. Bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. And you've been listening to Politics and Science, an interview with Dr. Raymond Pete recorded on the 22nd of January, 2012. Hopefully a Part 2 discussion will follow shortly. And you can find a number of Politics and Science shows at the Radio for All website. I'm getting them up there slowly, but hopefully surely. Uh, go to radio4all.net, radioforall and then search for politics and science, and you will find the webpage where there are now maybe, I think, 15 shows up there, and there will be more to come. So thanks for listening, and stay tuned again next week for another edition of Politics and Science.